0: second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this fine November the 5th. No, we do not have an outcome to report on the U.S. presidential election, but voters in 32 states actually did decide 120 statewide ballot measures on November the 3rd. And so I thought we might lead off today with a few of those, just a little sampling of what's going on around the country. I think it's a great reminder that we are both one nation under God, indivisible, the United States of America, and a federal republic of some pretty independent thinking states. And so what happened in your state in terms of statewide ballot measures? And if you live in Minnesota, um, you're saying, hey, there were no ballot measures uh, in Minnesota this year. Well, here we go. Then let's look around and see what happened uh, across the country. We did talk in the first hour about a ballot measure in Colorado um, that was designed to limit abortion after 22 weeks. Colorado has no gestational limit on abortion. Um, you can get an abortion in Colorado for any reason at any stage of pregnancy, uh, all the way up to the birth of the child. And the people of Colorado uh, decided, you know what, we like it that way. And so they struck down the the ballot measure that would have limited abortion to 22 weeks uh, conversely, the people of Louisiana have actually amended their state's constitution to protect the life of the unborn, uh, and so they have added a constitutional amendment in Louisiana to do just that. There were a number of uh, ballot measures in California, um, some of which we might be talking with in the coming weeks with uh, with a number of guests because there are uh, – there are conversations in California about all kinds of things. And one of the things that happened in the California ballot measures is that they they sort of went back and undid some ballot measures from 2014 and even 2016, um, because sometimes you make a decision and then you realize you can't live with the consequences. Um, so interesting things afoot there. I want to just uh, lift up a few others here. Five states approved ballot measures legalizing marijuana, Oregon went even further and decriminalized the possession of a number of other illegal drugs. I believe this is in moving us in the direction of decriminalizing addiction and saying, look, there are better ways to deal with people who are spiritually bound by drugs, right? You and I would recognize that as a spiritual issue and concern uh, that have become slaves to to illegal drugs. There, there must be better ways to help them deal with that, to get them into treatment and to actually have them Uh, become fruitful members of a a flourishing society than simply to incarcerate them. So I think this is a move in that direction. Mississippi approved a new state flag. Uh, Here's why that matters. Uh, Mississippi pretty quietly uh, retired the state flag that included um, what you would recognize as the, uh, the battle flag, the rebel flag of the Confederacy. They retired that. And so this was uh, the opportunity for the citizens of Mississippi to approve, approve a new state flag. Here's what is curious to me about it. It includes the words, in God we trust. I want you to note that as a really positive thing. All right. And then in Florida, uh, the minimum wage was raised to $15. That's going to happen over six years. But as that happens in states across the country, it's going to influence where people of minimum wage, um, you know, begin to look in terms of uh, things they'd like to see in their own states. All right. uh, Now we're going to turn our attention with Peter Kapsner to... um, Witches and Wicca, here is something that I have learned about the state of Minnesota and particularly the Twin Cities region. Did you know, did you know that um, the area uh, of the Twin Cities, because of the uh, apparently large community of Wiccans, witches, Druids, heathens, and a number of pagan organizations, this part of the country is actually known as, I'm going to pronounce this poorly, Paganistan? Paganistan? Yes, that's actually a term that was coined Um, about this region of the country. I didn't know that. We're going to talk about that with Peter Kapsner. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Captioner is joining me now, uh, and boy, do we have a number of fun things to talk about! Um, hey, uh, Sh- Shanette, I think Sh- Shanette in Michigan says, "Hey, uh, Minnesota may have uh, may have pagans. Michigan is loaded with psychic fairs, right? No, we might we yeah. might need to do a tour, Peter. <laughs> a,
2: tour the Upper Midwest, there, Carmen. <laughs> there are
0: things going on that I think as Christians we need to be paying attention to, um, and so uh, this this conversation was actually sparked um, by a headline in the Religion News Service about uh, the four years of magic and spells uh, that have been cast upon Donald Trump designed to bind him. So um, I felt like this gave us an opportunity to talk about uh, the power of blessing and cursing, both of which are biblical, and also actual witchcraft in America, which is apparently on the rise.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? And we do, we live, uh, and witchcraft takes a lot of different forms. Um, I was just going to say, sometimes it really is about the spells and it is about uh, the binding that you're describing. Sometimes it's very much sort of more of a pursuit of humanism, I guess you could probably say, and and finding the inner spark within and the power that is within you to sort of create reality. And and we live, uh, or my family and I live, we're about five miles away, I want to say, from one of the most prominent... temples, I suppose. Uh, you can drive by it. It's kind of secluded in this hillside. It's called Ekonkar, and, and it's very much a humanistic sort of form of witchcraft. And and it wasn't, I think it was last week, I was at a local grocery store in Chanhassen, Minnesota, and in the window of somebody that I parked next to, it said something. I mean, they were proudly displaying the fact that they were a witch on some level. And my, my 10-year-old son and I were just like, wow, that's uh, something you don't see every day. So I think it is more prominent than, than maybe we know. It is a little underground, I think, for some very understandable reasons. And, and I don't know, how you're processing just even the very idea of witchcraft, even from a, from a biblical standpoint. Um, you, you see sort of a sense of things in Leviticus where the people of God are obviously to stay away from that kind of practice, uh, indicating that that kind of practice was pretty common in their days. They came out of slavery from Egypt and, and trying to create a new sense of, of community and identity under Yahweh God. You also see that Saul, when the Spirit left him because of his repeated disobedience and he needed a sense of what needed to happen in the future on behalf of the people, what did he do he he dressed up disguised himself and he went and he consulted the witch of endor who apparently at least according to the the stories of scripture uh raised Samuel out of the grave and then Samuel proceeded to tell Saul that Saul would be joining him. Saul and Saul's sons would be joining him the next day. And so how we are, you know, there's a lot of ways to understand some of these stories, but but certainly in the worldview of the people of scripture, there was some measure of legitimacy to this kind of practice in terms of the fact that it might have an effect. And again, I don't know what to do about that in 2020 America for sure, but it's pretty interesting to read in the scriptures.
0: I I think this is a, an attraction to uh emerging generations. It I also know is, yes. that it I also know that it is attractive to um people who are particularly women who are single and aging and are looking for community. Yes. Like, it is very very interesting how the identity belonging and purpose conversation um is so real in everyone's life and people are going to find an answer to the question, even if it is a, a false answer about false practices and false gods. Like, I, people are satisfying themselves, they're satisfying their itchy ears with a number of things today that are just clearly contrary to God's will um, and certainly what we know to be true in Jesus Christ. It's just, it's, it's sad. I'm not trying to in any way make fun of people who have been drawn into Wicca or witchcraft Um, I'm not in any way trying to denigrate neo-pagans. I am trying to illuminate the reality to Christians who simply do not know this is going on.
2: Yeah, and I think Carmen, what you just said, I think, was the spot on insight of all of this. Is that uh, in an era in which we've become increasingly fractured from one another, and even you know brother and sister is beginning to raise hand against brother and sister in some in some frightening kinds of ways. I think uh, that longing for belonging and, and for that that hunger for identity and community, and, and especially as our country has become increasingly secularized, and there's not the big story of Christianity that holds us together. And and I'm not saying our, our country has had a, a wonderful 250 year run of being held together by christianity but but there was a sense at the very least that there was a bigger story a communal a communal identity holding us together And I I was talking recently with a friend of mine overseas in Scotland. He's a a young pastor over there. And he's talking about the religious pluralism that is really running rampant in Scotland right now, a couple generations after sort of the rejection of Christianity in Western Europe that has led to a secular society. But people still are very hungry for what you just said, some sense of story or belonging or community that holds them together. And so not unlike the first couple centuries of Christianity there before it was legalized by Constantine in Rome, it was a whole melting pot. I mean, when Paul visited the church in Corinth, the, the the number of religious expressions that were pagan religious expressions that were sort of medium spiritist kinds of religious expressions to Roman emperor worship to mystery religions. I mean, we are not that far away from the city of Corinth because I think what you just said, people are looking for something bigger than just their own lives. And if there's a community of witches per se that promises some sense of, of hope or peace or purpose or identity... Uh, you're pretty apt to, to go, and it's very seductive to go in that direction because I think we're just so lonely and feeling isolated and confused.
0: Dr. Peter Capster and I will return in just a moment. Um, I am going to pivot to a conversation about an airplane ride. Apparently, um, there are flights to nowhere, at least one <laughs> flight to nowhere, and um, I thought we should talk about that. Uh, if, P- if Peter Capster were going to take a flight to nowhere, um, over what sites would he like his flight? to go. I don't know. What would the flight path be? What was your flight path to nowhere include? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go
0: Paul Perot, that is some perfect music I don't record. know how he does
2: it. I don't, I don't know, know how he, how does, he it. does it. There no, is
0: literally a song for everything. There
2: is. I, if I, if I was in his role, it would be Jesus Loves Me on every bumper. I wouldn't even know what to pick. And he just rolls it out every 90 seconds. It's amazing.
1: He is amazing. <laughs> he
0: okay. really is. Okay. Uh, Here's the headline that caught my attention. Thai Airways launches, quote, flight to nowhere for religious worshipers. Now, of course— I keyed in on religious worshipers, but I'm going to pivot uh, with you, Peter Kapsner, to an entire conversation about a flight to nowhere. So here we go. Nervous travelers have often found themselves praying on board a plane, but a new flight, uh, new flight offering from Thai Airways plans to plans to feature in-flight spirituality. So the airline is going to fly um, the Thai Magical Flying Experience campaign over some of Thailand's holiest Buddhist religious sites passengers reciting mantras along the way. It's sightseeing flight to nowhere. It's going to last three or four hours and it's going to take place on November the 30th. So Peter Kapsner, if you were to board a flight to nowhere, what would the flight path include?
2: Okay, so so first of all, I, I, it, it seems like I could practice my my religious faith in Christianity without having to get on an airplane because I, I do sympathize with the view of praying before you get on an airplane. Anytime I'm on one of those things, it's usually about two hours in the flight, and I start thinking I'm in a, a, a cylindrical <laughs> shape in the sky that is held together by rivets, and this thing's going down, and I I cannot talk. You know, the pretzels don't even help me talk myself off the ledge at that point. It's it's always a little rough. So how am I going to key in on my religious faith? But it, it was so interesting, wasn't it? to read that they're getting on these flights they're literally going nowhere and they are it goes back to our conversation we just had they are going to be with maybe 30 40 50 other practicing Buddhists, and they are going to meditate and they're going to chant and they're going to fly over these holy sites i mean it it would be akin uh, to to christians i suppose on some level deciding to fly over jerusalem and and seeing maybe the mount of olives seeing the garden of gethsemane seeing um Gogotha in the hilltop or maybe flying over to the Elah Valley where David and Goliath happened and reading some of the scripture passages as you go. Now, frankly, that actually might be a pretty fun trip if you can actually see the countryside of Israel uh, from the plane and you're studying the scriptures as you do it. But this whole thing, uh, it it really, (laughs) I mean.
0: (laughs) So that would not take very long because Israel is so small. It's very small. So I don't know how, like your, your plane would have to go super slow. Yeah. So this plane is going to go fast. It's going to feature a celebrity fortune teller and a religion history expert. They are going to lead in-flight chanting of Buddha, Buddhist mantras. That's amazing. Um, so I really – here's the reason I wanted to lift this up, <clears throat> in part because I can't really imagine what might happen um, in the United States of America if some domestic carrier said, you know what, we're going to do sort of a cathedrals and steeples uh tour of America. And right. We're gonna fly and we're gonna we're gonna make sure that people can actually see these substantial churches and these substantial Christian institutions across the country. And we're gonna be sure that they get to see one in all of the fifty states or something, right? And that would be a long flight. I recognize that. Um and and on board there are going to be um Christian pastors and uh and maybe um a Christian history uh, you know a, a Bible expert and they're going to be also leading Christians in a time of prayer as we fly over these significant Christian sites in the United States of America. Uh, that would be an interesting political discussion.
2: It would guess be. who's
0: sponsoring? Guess who's sponsoring the flight in Thailand?
2: I did not see who was sponsoring that was would it. Was be the, the government? Was it the government, government the government that was doing it? Interesting.
0: Yeah, so yeah. they're trying to boost domestic tourism. They are, for so, sure. I did
2: see that part of it.
0: Yeah, so I just think that when, you know, why bring this up? It's happening in Thailand. It's, you know, it's probably not something anybody listening is going to go and do. It's in order to provoke us to think about how people around the world practice faiths other than ours, how governments are involved in that conversation, how uh, industry, in this case, Thai Airlines, views this as a way to um, boost their, you know, their income. Right. Yes. And, and I just think that all of those are interesting conversations when we here in the United States of America, you know, we we eschew being religious in public at all. And they're embracing it.
2: Yeah. And and I think it's such an important point, again, that you make right there in terms of as the world has come closer together, something we just referenced again a little bit ago. There really is this collision of culture. There's a collision of different ways of doing life. And it was pretty interesting when you in reading the article that uh, so pervasive was the Buddhist faith within that particular uh, community and, and even embraced by the government, that those flights, th- those invitations, they were selling out in like less than 30 minutes. And it was a couple hundred dollars a pop to take this Buddhist religious tour over these sites. So clearly there is an energy and an interest level. But, you know, I, Carmen, I started my... A postgraduate work, I wanna say in two thousand four. It was shortly after the nine eleven. And and if we could go back into that time, I think even at that time we as Americans were were relatively naive, and not in a bad way, I just mean that we just simply didn't know about how there were so many other religious practices going on in the world. And so it was confusing to us how there could be sort of this branch of conservative Wahhabi Islam that would perceive the West in the way that it did, so much so that it was training young men to go ahead and uh, kill themselves on behalf of uh, the the goal of their specific version of their faith and thus find themselves in the embrace of Allah. These were all really interesting, different, um, very confusing kinds of ideas. And when I started my my work, I literally – I was so ignorant about the different practices of religion. My first Ph.D. book that I ever read was was a sixth-grade level board book with big pages and big pictures about so many of these different religious expressions. And in these 16 years, 17 years since that time – we really have experienced these collision of faiths, and I see it in my young people. And for them, they are regularly and and often easily interacting with so many different faiths around them in the coffee shops that they go to, not so much anymore, obviously, with the pandemic. But they easily have friends uh, and and talk with them so easily uh, of very many different kinds of faith traditions. It really is this melting pot. And I think the invitation that we have is, what does Christianity look like in the midst of that? What What is the distinctive offer? When Christianity is no longer a cultural reality in our country, when it, When it's one faith among many, how do we go and, and shine that light in those places? It's a pretty interesting conversation, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon.
0: All right, if you have a Wiccan community uh, in your area, if you have a Buddhist community in your area, um, I'm hoping that what we're talking about today provokes you not only to pray, but provokes you to engage, ask questions, be curious, learn, befriend, and then wander into, right? Walk, you know, Walk your faith into the life of another person and do so in a way that makes them stop and ask a better question, because Jesus is a way better answer than the ones they're pursuing right now. Peter Kapsner, as always, thank you so much. Love oh, it hey. Thank you in advance for um, hosting tomorrow.
2: Uh, yes, I will try not to break your show tomorrow morning.
0: Do not break my show, man. <laughs> Mornings without Carmen, tomorrow with Peter Kapsner. Love Thanks, it. man. See ya. All right. We'll be right back. <laughs> Do you remember purity culture? Do you remember um, conversations not only maybe in your own adolescence and growing up, but uh, conversations in the larger, larger church about what became known as maybe kissing dating goodbye. Um, do you remember the ring thing? I'm going to have a conversation uh, here next with Rachel Joy Welcher, and we're going to talk about talking back to purity culture and really uh, rediscovering faithful Christian sexuality. Purity is a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And we need to redeem how we talk about it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Yet Jesus stayed where he was for the next two days. This is Max Locato. The crisis of health was exacerbated by the crisis of delay. Days came and went. No Jesus. Lazarus began to fade. No Jesus. Lazarus died. No Jesus. Israel's rabbinic faith taught that for three days a soul lingered about a body, but on the fourth day it left permanently. Jesus was a day late, or so it seemed. Verses 21 and 22, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Maybe you, like Martha, are disappointed. You told Jesus about the sickness. You waited at the hospital bed now death has come. Would you be willing to imitate the faith of Martha? Would you say, even now, I believe in God? Remember, my friend, you are never alone.
0: like me, you were scolded most often when you were a child for talking back. And so I am thrilled to have on with me now a woman who um, is going to teach us how to appropriately talk back. Uh, Rachel Joy Welcher is the author of Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality. Rachel, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It's great to be here. All right. It is really wonderful to talk with you today. Um, Let's lead off with this. Uh, People see purity culture in the headline of something. They may have ideas in their mind about what it means. I think we better start with, what is your understanding of purity culture? What is the concern you are addressing? Um, And let me just go ahead and tell people in advance, Rachel loves the church. She loves the bride. She is interested in the flourishing of, of God's people, Um, She's also interested in our having accurate conversations about what God has said about sexual purity and not necessarily what we have been raised to believe about it. So is that a good setup, Rachel, for this conversation?
3: Yeah, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. So so what
0: is purity culture?
3: So purity culture, modern American purity culture, um, was a reaction to fear of STDs and teen pregnancy in the 80s, um, where churches and youth pastors and parents were kind of scrambling to deal with these fears, and they had a very good desire to help their children pursue sexual purity. Uh, What ended up happening is when we scramble to um, motivate teenagers to to honor God, um, because of government-funded abstinence education and the way that we had to some, kind of tweak the message so that it could appear in public schools without being associated with the gospel, um, the message became more a uh, moralistic message of, if you do these things, you will get these rewards of marriage, great sex, and babies. And so it became uh, a prosperity gospel within purity culture.
0: So it, there's this like moralistic transactionalism that you're, that you're addressing. There's the, you know, there's this teaching that says, if I don't do this, I will get this when I get married. Um, and, and so the chastity is not connected to um, God is holy and desires that I be holy. God, um, you know, God knows what's best. And this is actually this will be best for me. Um, instead, it's tied to I will have the greatest sex ever if I don't have sex prior to getting married. That is just that transactionalism, moralistic transactionalism, is not true.
3: Right. It's not biblical.
0: Yeah. So, talk, but I think I think that when we talk about the redeeming conversation, that's what we have to illuminate, and that's what you do in the book, right? You're illuminating the things that we have been told or were raised to believe that right. are not biblical. And and yet you're laying very, very positive claim to purity. And I want people to hear that and understand that. Um, so talking back to purity culture means pointing out those things that do not align with what God has revealed in Scripture. And that's really where you went to, to answer the questions of your own heart and the questions of others.
3: Exactly. I mean, I'm a pastor's daughter, a pastor's wife, and as you said, I love the church. And so My desire is that not that we try to erase God's sexual ethic, in fact, I state it very clearly in my book, but that we are biblical in our approach to these conversations rather than fear-based or dangling what I would call these kind of sexy carrots in front of teenagers as though God's glory is not motivation enough, that we have to promise them things that are never promised in Scripture. See, what happened is my generation was taught this prosperity gospel, and now there are people, I, I ended up divorced. I married a Christian man who left me. Um, I have friends who are still single in their late 30s, um, friends who are struggling with fertility. So these are things that feel like broken promises, but they weren't promises that God ever gave us. They were promises that purity culture told us. So you see, you see people questioning their faith as a result of these things they were taught that they thought were associated with scripture but we're actually extra biblical. And we really need to challenge
0: those ideas. All right. I am talking with uh, with Rachel Joy Welcher. We are talking about her book, Taking Back, Talking Back, sorry, Talking Back to Purity Culture. Um, I have some copies to give away if you are interested, if this is right up your alley. Maybe you are a parent, maybe you are um, a teacher, maybe you are a youth worker, maybe you are a person who wow, got really confused along the way about what uh, sexual purity means for the Christian. We want to engage these conversations. We want to engage them in community. This is this is the book designed to do that. Um, if you want to copy, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Rachel, uh, maybe, um, maybe it would be helpful to even just give everybody permission to talk out loud about things that we frankly either don't talk about at all or only talk about in very private settings,
3: absolutely, or in very segregated settings. Right? You know, we would get mm. teenagers together in a group at summer camp and talk about this subject, um, or you know, we have a, a sexy sermon series. But the Bible, in in the Bible, sexuality is integrated into Scripture, and so if we're preaching through the full Word of God, if we are living a full Christian life. Sexuality will be part of that because it's a God-created good. And so I think that we need to remove that kind of taboo fear um, and embarrassment because people are struggling in the darkness. They're struggling alone. And so these conversations need to be brought into our small groups and our um, our communities and our churches.
0: I love the, um, the suggestion. I can't remember if maybe it's at the end of chapter one. Um, The suggestion of doing just that you talk about, you know, maybe like getting people together. And when you say getting people together, I mean, I recognize we're going to do this in a in a socially distanced, you know, pandemic appropriate way now. But (laughs) uh, when you suggest getting people together, you're I love the way you describe the breadth of the people that you would like to see get together, you know, at my house to watch a particular documentary, and I'll let you introduce that to people, Um, and then the kind of discussion that comes out of having a really, really broad group of people doing that.
3: Right. I I have this dream um, that a a group would study my book and it would include, you know, a teenager and maybe a widow, um, a married couple, someone who's single, someone who's same-sex attracted or divorced, a a diverse group of people who have um, been through different things, but they would find this commonality that, first of all, we are all sexual beings, but, and we all have different struggles, but we can pray for each other. We can rejoice together. We can grieve together. And that these are not topics that have to remain secretive because they are common to man. And so that I have this dream that, and and there's nothing, I want to say that there's nothing sexy about my book. It's not meant to titillate. It's it's serious. It's meant to um, stir up compassion and a more biblical approach. And so it's a safe book to study in a mixed environment, a mixed group of
0: people. Yeah. When you um, – uh, it is – there is it, – it grows out of an academic exercise. Like I kind of – that sure. kind of thrills me, right? So because <laughs> – that, but I think that's important for people to know. Um, Rachel is a serious student of the Word of God, and this um, this book actually grows out of uh, her dissertation for her master's thesis in divinity at the University of St Andrews. So um, there's nothing uh, there's nothing slouchy about the uh, about the theology um, in this book. If again, if you are interested in entering the drawing for one of the copies I have of "Talking Back to Purity Culture: Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality," text the word "book." to 877-933-2484. Rachel Joy Welcher and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation with Rachel Joy Welcher, her book is talking back to purity culture I do have copies to give away if you are interested text the word book to 8779332484 um Rachel let's um let's dig in a little bit to um to the substance of of the conversations that you are having and provoking us to have in this book I want to jump to um I want to jump to chapter 4 just give people okay. a sense of what, um, what this conversation about male purity and the rhetoric of lust, like, OK, so first of all, that is an interesting conversation to have, a conversation about male purity. We have tended to have lots of conversations about female purity. Um, that's a good right. conversation to have, male purity. But then the rhetoric of lust, this is important as well. Just give people a sense of what's in chapter four.
3: So I think it could be summarized by a story of one man that I interviewed. Um, he said that when he first became a Christian, he went to the Christian bookstore to figure out what it meant to be a man of God. And every book on the shelf uh, was about the theme of lust. And so he felt like being a Christian man was reduced to this one topic, this one struggle, and it kind of defined men. So what I talk about in this chapter is how the books that were popular at that time, um, Wild at Heart, Every Man's Battle, um, Ike stating goodbye. How those books had themes that maybe even contributed to this idea that while men are supposed to have sexual self control, that it's almost impossible, and so they have to avoid women or treat them as obstacles to purity rather than sisters in Christ.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that this this leads into then all kinds of conversations. Um, about women in the workplace, how we uh, interact with one another, we um, we arrive at what we might have all grown up knowing as the Billy Graham rule, which is now understood in the culture as the Mike Pence rule. I mean, I, I will right. just tell you this: this conversation is deep and wide, and needs to be had um, in every uh, sector of of the culture. Certainly in our homes and with our boys, but with our husbands and with the men with whom we work, uh, particularly you know as Christian professionals in the marketplace today. All right, can we jump to chapter 8? I'd love for you to do kind of that same thing again. Summarize it. Summarize it with a story. I love that. Um so chapter 8, submitting to God's sexual ethic as embodied souls. I I love I love your approach here.
3: Oh, well, thank you. So chapter 8 is my attempt, I mean I try to cover a lot in the book, but my attempt to remind readers that while we re-examine purity culture, we're not throwing out God's biblical sexual ethic. And what I found in my research is that those who are writing about purity culture right now, um, the most popular authors are actually uh, throwing out God's sexual ethic and saying, okay, not only do we need to question these harmful teachings, but we need to throw out um, what they believe are outdated views of sex and sexuality. So my point is that scripture doesn't change and and so there are um things god wants for us with when it comes to sex and marriage that we need to honor and i'm very honest about how that's very difficult that suffering is a part of the christian life and for some for some people prolonged singleness um can be a form of suffering if they long for marriage and they don't have it and it's okay to acknowledge that that's an unmet longing that someone might have so I just try to reiterate what the Bible says about sex and um, starting with the fact that sexuality was not the original sin, that sexuality is a God-created good. We can use it for evil, but it's not something to be ashamed of being
0: sexual beings. Okay, that um, that needs to be like on a poster somewhere, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that is seriously like if, um, if, if anybody that's listening right now, you are a social media influencer of any kind— that is the that's the word that needs to be broadcast um not only to the next generation but to the current generation of Christians um sex is not the original sin sexuality right. is not the original sin sex is a good gift of god um he does, he has designed it to happen within a context um right. but it is good it is good uh, okay so i loved um then the the chapters that follow chapter 8 what will we tell our children? Um, But then let's give people a little glimpse into purity culture moving forward, because I think this is the redemptive conversation, particularly for church leaders and other ministry leaders and parents of teenagers and on and on and on. Like, how do we move forward positively um, with the purity conversation?
3: Right. So this is where I talk about my dream of having a group gather that's diverse, right? That's not just married couples talking about sex or singles talking about sex or teenagers, but that we need the entire um body of so, christ and so rachel
0: so rachel even yes. like even getting like three mature quished christian women <laughs> to open eyed have a conversation about sex is right. challenging and i know this because i have tried right people right. it is people are weird they get very weird When you start talking about this subject, I'm just I mean, I know you know that, but I feel like you and I need to say that in front of everybody else right now. Um, Rachel and I recognize it is hard for you to imagine that you're going to get a group of people together, a really diverse group of people together. And you guys are going to honestly talk about sex. Right, right. And that's going to be okay.
3: Right. Well, and I think one of the things is that Christians have this idea that if we talk about sex, that it will cause um, sexual sin and lust, like that it'll stir it up. But there's absolutely a way to talk about these things um, in a pure way that honors God. And and scripture does that. And so I think that if we're reading through the Bible, these topics will come up. Um, But in my book, I actually provide some discussion questions at the end of chapters to do just that, where I'm kind of giving, I'm handing people a question to ask so they don't have to be the one that comes up with it. And they can say, well, look, the book is asking this question. And there are questions like, What were you taught about masculinity and femininity growing up in the church? Or what, um, you know, what were you taught to believe about sex and marriage? And how have your views changed and why? Questions like that.
0: So I, uh, the worth question and the worthiness question, um, Mm -hmm. I think, is where you arrive. um, And restoring, restoring our understanding of who we are as image bearers of the living God. Yes. um, Some of us arrived at marriage as virgins, and others did not. And those who have been divorced and are remarried obviously have. Um, more sexual experiences than those who are only ever married once and were virgins when they got married. I mean, like, right, it's complex. And we're also not holding one standard out there as and and I don't think we should make an idol of marriage. Like, I think we make an idol of chastity and virginity. And I think we make an idol of marriage. I don't and I don't think we're supposed to make idols of anything. We're supposed to love God.
3: Amen. Exactly. There you go. You said it. Um, Yeah, I think my takeaway, what I want people to walk away with is that the source of our purity is not our own strivings. The source of our purity is found in Christ. And so we should strive to obey God, but we will fail. And we need to be honest with our children and our teenagers that sexual sin is, is common to man. And it doesn't mean that it's not important, but God forgives it and we move on and we get back up. And and rather than pretending that all people make it, all Christians make it to the altar of virgin, that doesn't happen. And sexual abuse is an issue as well. And so um, my point is that our purity cannot be damaged because Christ is our purity.
0: Amen. Hey, one question from a listener, because I mentioned the documentary um, and then we didn't give the name of it. Can you do that before we go? Or do I need to track it down?
3: That's um I survived, I kissed Stating and Goodbye. And I believe you can watch it for free online by Jessica right. Vander Wingard. Yep.
0: All right. So the documentary which we're just saying, hey, have a watch party of the documentary and get a good conversation going to foster these redemptive conversations and pathways for people uh, to a restored understanding of God's God's grace in in our lives. Um the documentary is I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which is obviously a reference to the book and part of the purity culture movement. Um, okay, so Rachel Joy Welcher, what a joy to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the gift of the book, Talking Back to Purity Culture. If you want to uh, enter uh, the drawing for one of the copies I have, just text the word book to 877 Rachel, I think we're going to be talking with you again. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. We'll be right back. I'm going to encourage you today to be salt and to be light, to be gentle, to tread very carefully in the fragile places. Um, People are on edge, and let us be people of faith who live with a confidence and a gratitude and a graciousness and a mercy, even in the midst of the most complex of days. So let's uh, handle one another gently today as we Go forth into the world that God so loves to represent Christ. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.